You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. I am your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. With me today is my good friend, as always, Aram. Aram, how are you doing today, sir? I'm great. Beautiful summer day. Absolutely. Now, I am excited to start talking about the principles of persuasion with our guest today. So why don't you go ahead and introduce them for us, Aram? Absolutely, Nolan. Thanks. Hey, folks. Today, we're joined by Brian Ahern, Chief Influence Officer at Influence People. Brian is an international trainer, TEDx presenter and consultant, and specializes in applying the science of influence in everyday business solutions. Brian spent more than 30 years in the insurance industry and is one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently owns the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer designation. Brian's book, Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical, was named one of the top 100 influence books of all time by Book Authority. Brian, it is an honor and privilege to, to welcome you and have you join us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. As I told you, uh, this is my favorite subject to talk about next to my family. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, whenever we introduce a guest, we typically like to start to first uncover the journey of how you got to become a negotiator, both professionally, personally. So I guess let's kick it off with that, is how did you get to where you are today? So I started my career in the insurance industry as an underwriter, which is a very analytical kind of black and white role as you're analyzing risks. And we were almost taught that the only thing insurance agents cared about was price. And I really thought that all that sales stuff was BS. I just thought it was fluff. It made no difference. They just wanted the lowest price they could get. And then I changed companies. I was over at a company called State Auto Insurance got involved in the sales department, started learning from a guy who was a great salesperson and really began to see that, wow, what we say and how we say it can make a big difference in terms of how people respond. And then I happened to come across the work of Dr. Robert Cialdini about 20 years ago. And for me, when I, when I saw this video of him presenting at Stanford, the light bulb came on because I thought, holy cow, the psychology that he's talking about is the underpinning of all selling. It's why certain approaches work, certain approaches don't. I love the fact that it was based on research. It wasn't just someone's good advice. And I really like to stance on how you can do it ethically. And that was a pivotal point for me because once I started utilizing his information to help the sales team, we saw dramatic results. And the more I went along with it, I, through a series of events, ended up meeting Dr. Cialdini, got certified by him back in 2008, and I knew it's what I was going to do with the rest of my career. And that entailed leaving the corporate world about three and a half years ago to do influence people full time. Oh, that's great. And, and thank you for sh kind of sharing your journey there. I guess the question, the follow up to this is, you know, were there any major, I mean, obviously you mentioned the Cialdini training that you received and certification. Is, were there any other key development milestones that you achieved in kind of to get you to the point that you are now? Well, I, I will say that one of the things that was a huge impact on my ability to deliver the messages uh, came when I really began to understand how people think and process information and moving away from those text-driven, bullet point, full of slides, and went picture-driven, 
and really began to engage people via stories and things like that. And so, you know, my my mission is to help people take this information, utilize it to enjoy more success and happiness. So that's critical for me to be able to do that with them. Hey, um, Brian, can maybe you say a little bit more? And I know some of this comes from your book, but also kind of what you're hinting at right now, which is this definition of persuasion and how we use it and how we use how we can help people use it more effectively. What can you say a little bit more about uh, about how you define it and and everything? Sure. That's one of those words that if I asked a dozen people, I'd get a dozen slightly different answers. And most people would say, well, to change how somebody thinks or feels about something. I like Aristotle's definition. And Aristotle said that persuasion was the art of getting someone to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. And when you think about that, it's a great definition. Someone's not doing something that you need them to do. How might you communicate with them to make that happen? If we change how they think or feel about it, that can be icing on the cake. But, you know, the reality is sometimes we don't care how somebody thinks or feels about something. We just need them to do it. So it's for me, persuasion is about behavior change. What can we say or do to make that happen? And what I do is I lean on the research from social psychology, primarily Dr. Robert Cialdini's, looking at these principles of influence that are universal across the world in terms of people responding to them. Can you say, say a little bit more about those principles, please? Sure. Principle, these principles of persuasion describe how people typically think and behave when they encounter the, the psychology. So, for example, reciprocity is one principle of persuasion. Reciprocity is the natural feeling of obligation that we have to give back or to do something for someone who has done it for us first. And social psychologists are in agreement that every human society around the world raises its people in the way of reciprocity. We have just learned over the course of human existence that we can get more accomplished together than we can apart. And that if you help me, it's probably in my interest to help you so that we keep this positive relationship going. So where people can struggle with that, you know, I can explain it and they're like, oh, I get it. And then they fall into a reward mentality and rewards are different than reciprocity. Rewards I characterize as if you, I will. If you do A, I'll do B. If you hit this metric, I'll give you a sales bonus. Reciprocity is I have. Will you? I have done this thing. I have done A. Would you do B for me, please? And that feeling of obligation sometimes gets you to say, yes, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So it's, it's not a contractual relationship, but it actually can be a relationship builder because you don't feel forced or coerced into doing something. I've done something for you. You feel this obligation. You do something for me. And we both benefited from the transaction. Brian, is there a fear on reciprocity? Is there a fear going first to take that uh, risk of stepping out? And do you think like as you as you teach this all over the world? I mean, do people say, oh, Brian, it's a great idea, but I don't want to be the first one to go there. Absolutely. People, people are afraid that they'll do something and not get something in return. And, and I tell them, first of all, these principles are not a magic wand. They will not get everybody to do what you want all the time. I don't get what I want all the time, but I know I get what I want a lot more because I understand how people think and behave. And I look to thoughtfully and ethically apply these principles to those communications. The interesting thing about reciprocity, though, is sometimes you don't have to give nearly as much to get some kind of favor in return. So an example, in our two-day workshop, we talk about uh, a bit of research where a survey was sent out to construction companies. 
and they wanted to see if they could get construction companies to fill out the survey. In one instance, they offered them a $50 reward. If you fill out the survey and send it back, we will send you a $50 check. The other group was told uh, they were given a $5 check up front and said, we understand that your time is valuable. We hope you'll take a moment to take the survey. So you have 10 times more reward than the reciprocity. But what they found was only 23% of the people who are offered the $50 or the $50 reward took the survey. But 52% of the people who were given the $5 check up front took the survey. And if you do the math, even if everybody had cashed that check, even the ones who didn't take the survey, they still saved at least 55%, potentially as much as 75%, depending on how many people cashed it. So you doubled your response and you basically cut your cost in half or more. Yeah, I love that. So it's 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 not even as much about the substance as it is about the process, the action of of leading and, and engaging uh, in this ethical constructive way and, and reciprocating on some of that. Absolutely. People, most of people's processing of information happens at the subconscious level. So, you know, if you put a sticky note on a, on a letter that you're mailing out, somebody's probably not going, oh, Aram put a yellow sticky note on that. I should respond. But subconsciously, we recognize people have done something a little bit more. And so we do a little bit more in return. So what we're looking at is something that can sometimes be very subtle, but can actually get a very big return. Now, Brian, in your book, Influence People, and first off, really appreciate when the author reads their own Audible book, because I'm an Audible guy. Aram is the book guy, but you did a great job with reading your book. I know it's not always a good fit for all authors, but I just want to say you did a great job. Thank you. Anyone who is trying to learn more about this, please check out the book that Brian did. Audible also recommended. But let's get to principle number two, which is liking. Tell us a little bit more about that one. So liking says that it's natural for us to say yes to those that we know and like. Everybody gets that, right? I mean, nobody on, on a Friday night picks up the phone and says, who do I not like? I would have called them and go out. We, we, we tend to want to be around and do things with and for people that we like. So everybody gets it. But what people fail to do is employ the principle in a way that's most powerful. See, most people will spend an inordinate amount of time trying to get people to like them, assuming that, oh, well, if you like me, Nolan, you will be more inclined to do what I want. And that's true, but there's a much more effective way. And that's for me to do everything I can to come to like you, Nolan. So if I'm looking at what we have in common and if I can find things I can genuinely compliment, I'm convincing myself what a good guy you are. I'm starting to like you. And you can sense that with all of your perception, you can sense who really likes you. And when you begin to see, hey, Brian likes me and he seems to care for me, you're much more open to whatever I might ask of you because you believe that, hey, Brian's going to do right by me. But because I have come to know and like you, I do want your best. And, and I call it a virtuous mm-hmm. cycle where because I've come to know and like you, I'm always putting forth what I believe is in your best interest. And that's how you're receiving it. Let me kick this over to Aram. So if we take that principle of liking and I think if we apply it to the relationships model that that we use, are you able to make that connection there uh, between the two models, uh, Aaron? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, it's it's certainly finding commonalities with with regards to interests. I also what I, what I heard Brian say was, you know, where there's an effort and it starts with me rather than starting with them. 
I, I wanted to dig in, you know, Brian's so much, we talk about cross-cultural as if it's some sort of, I don't know, supernatural thing, but the truth is between regions of the U.S., between different companies, there's there's cross-cultural dynamics. How do you apply liking when there are, you know, maybe surface level, cross-cultural you know, cr- differences, or maybe more deeply held biases and prejudices? How do you, how do you try to coach folks to, to kind of use this principle? Well, the thing that I li- rely on the most is just to ask questions and to, and to try to be very genuine in asking those questions. You know, I, I talk to a lot of Uber drivers and it seems like the majority that I encounter uh, have come to this country at some point. And so I will ask them questions and I'll say, look, I'm, I'm curious, since I know that you're from Egypt, um, how long you've been here? And then we start talking about that. And I said, I, I want to ask you some questions and you will not offend me. I just really want to know what you think about. And it could be a whole variety of things. And I really think that people at that point start opening up. They feel I, I'm giving them space. I'm promising them that I'm not here to judge. I just want to understand. And I and usually it's like, what is the the mindset or the view of this country from people who are coming in from, from outside? And and I end up having amazing conversations. So I think creating a safe space by asking questions, giving permission. I've had one driver who really didn't want to talk. And when I sensed that, I just didn't keep engaging on it. Uh, But most of them, I I find most people want to be known. They want to share who they are and what they think. And when you give them the safe space to do it, you'll be amazed at the conversations that you can have. Well, Brian, I, I have the same experience. I like I like talking to uh, Uber drivers too, and I've had one person who pushed back and who didn't did not like the questions and referred to me as an American cowboy with um, <laughs> with with kind of my 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 bro, uh, very kind of uh, aggressive. I guess what was perceived as aggressive. I didn't mean for it, you know series series of kind of questions and inquiry. That I like how you frame it, kind of giving space. As soon as I recognize it, obviously I backed off. But yeah, usually usually though my experiences are like yours. They're pretty positive too. Well, the, the one experience that, that really set the course for me happened many, many years ago. In fact, probably many decades ago. And I worked for an insurance company and I had bumped into somebody in the Nashville airport, uh, someone I worked with, but he really didn't know very well. So we were on a Southwest flight. We sat next to each other. As soon as the flight took off, I turned to her and I said, I'm going to ask you a question. And if you're not comfortable answering it, please don't feel obligated to. But what is it like to be a black woman who works at our company? Now, this was decades before all the strife that we're going through now. She didn't stop talking for the whole 45 minutes. She never would have brought it up. But but the, the, because I gave a safe space to do that and I was non-judgmental, she just you know really shared her heart. And I have found that that is an approach that works almost every time. You know, I want to ask you a question. If you're not comfortable, please feel free. You don't need to answer. But I'm curious. And, and then you state what it is you want to be informed about. Yeah, and that's what I was gonna. I was gonna comment. You you also seem to demonstrate genuine curiosity. I don't see that demonstrate all the time. I I, I feel like I have to coach folks sometimes. You know, the, the I don't know if you've seen Ted Lasso, Brian, but the you know the the Whitman quote about you know get curious, not not judgmental. Oh, you need to watch Ted Lasso. Big fan, big fan. But he says you know get curious, not judgmental, in in that openness, right? How do you coach folks to ask better questions and then to really listen? Because that it seems obvious, but I don't think it's as obvious as we make it out to be. I really think that if if we go back to the beginning and and we really are hammering home liking and how important that is, that when you really do start coming to know somebody, 
you want to get to know them and you become more curious and it's easier for you, I think, to, to listen to them rather than feeling like you're competing for airtime and you've got to get your say in. When you begin to understand the principle of reciprocity more, that the more I get to know and like you, the more informed I can be in my giving, that becomes more genuine. But I also feel more comfortable to maybe say something like, hey, Nolan, could I take a couple minutes to share with you my perspective on this? So even if I ask the question and you share, and I'm not sensing that you're getting it and, and asking back, I can step into that space and ask. And most people are going to probably be like, oh, absolutely, go ahead. So I can still engage the reciprocity, even though they haven't been the first person to act there. What I think is key in all of this is I'm very junior in my career as to you two. So I'm, I'm able to kind of look at this at a different lens. And I think that just until recently, I've been able to do the act of listening where maybe in the first part of my career is always about frame, like trying to think of that great question to ask. Mm -hmm. But then I don't think I'd fully listen to the answer because I'd be trying to develop the next question. Mm -hmm. And so I think as a junior leader, something to think about there is, is really hammering down on the act of listening part of what you're talking about. And I, I'll build off that too, Nolan. I just asked for a question for Brian. So, you know, working with sales folks, I have students that will come in that have been in sales for so long. And, and the thought is, well, you never ask a question you don't know, you don't already know the answer to. But that doesn't sound like that's what you're saying. You're saying that sometimes it's okay to maybe be surprised, to, to learn something you didn't know. Yeah, you can't possibly know the answer to everything. And there are going to be answers that come at you that you haven't heard before. But the good thing is, the longer you do it, the less those happen. And, and I always tell people that in sales, you most salespeople don't like objections. They would love to just talk and close the sale. But the reality is it's going to happen. But the good news is the longer you've been in it, there's probably not an objection that you haven't heard. So, so nothing's coming out of left field. And then the second thing is you can practice. You can start saying, okay, if that comes up, how am I going to do this? And I practice out loud in the car if I'm out in the walk for a walk in the morning. But, but I want, when I deal with some kind of concern or objection, or if I'm you know just on a podcast talking like this, I want what I'm saying to come from within me so that it's natural and it's conversational and it's authentic to Brian Ahern. I don't want people to learn a script and all walk around like robots and say the same thing. You're like, oh, okay, you just were in a sales class, right? Uh, it's got to be, you've got to take it in, understand it, and then make it your own. Yeah, there is, there is a little bit of that that goes on. All right, Brian, let's talk about principle number three, authority. Okay. Authority tells us that people will naturally defer to others when they're making decisions, when that other person has expertise or they're known to be very wise. So the challenge for us as ethical influencers is to make sure that the people that we interact with understand that we have expertise. Now, you guys display this every time you have a podcast guest on, right? You read a bio. Otherwise, people would be like, well, who's this person? Why do I want to listen to this episode? But, <laughs> but if the topic is of interest to them and then they say, wow, this person seems to have expertise. Now, it's always incumbent upon me to make sure that they understand that. That's why I supply a bio to you guys and I do when I'm other podcasts or if I get up to speak in front of a group. And I'm very intentional about what I make sure is being shared so that it will resonate most with that audience. All of your listeners need to do that. When they go into a negotiation situation, 
if the other person knows nothing about them, they could be one of the best negotiators in the world, but that's not going to necessarily help them as much as it could if they had their credentials out in front of them. So getting that out there and via third party is always best because like you guys could say something about me that if I say it for myself, I might sound like I'm bragging, but coming from you, it's perfectly natural. So how do you help somebody who's new to an organization trying to influence internally they're, they're just getting their feet underneath them or, or maybe somebody who is negotiating procurement arrangement, brand new to the spot. And again, is trying to still building that expertise. How can, how can you build that if you don't just naturally have it? Like they don't have the robust bio you have. You can still turn to somebody above you in the organization. So maybe if you're a new employee and you're going to go into this meeting and it's the first time you're going to lead a small project, you can turn to your boss and say, Hey boss, um, it would really be helpful if these dozen people who are going to be in the meeting understood a little bit more about me. Now, you may not have like the five or 10 years of experience, but you may have been hired in because you were an honors student or something like that. You may be volunteering. You may be involved with Rotary or Kiwanis or something like that. But you, you need to look at the breadth of who you are and try to take some of that information and make it as compelling as possible so that those people, when they get that email before the meeting and they're looking at it going, wow, I didn't know that about that person. I'm kind of interested in that. Mm -hmm. Or if you have some things on a personal level where they might say, oh, I'm into hiking too. And so you connect there and that starts to grease the wheels and make things a little bit easier. So I always tell people that, you know, a couple of paragraphs on the professional level and maybe one on the personal level to engage liking. And that can go a long way to start building some rapport with the people that you'll be leading. Yeah. And you just kind of went to it as you went to liking and, and I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because I know Nolan's going to kind of, you know, ask you to walk through some of these other principles too, but it seems like there's a link between these, right? So if I am low on authority and I can acknowledge that, do I leverage liking or reciprocity more? And is that part of what we're kind of discussing here is kind of being aware of what I bring and don't. Absolutely. So one of the things about authority to be authority, to be considered uh, an authority, you have to have expertise and you have to have trustworthiness. If you're low on the on the expertise, you can build your trustworthiness by admitting it up front. You know, so you could go into that meeting and, and say, you know, I'm not sure how all how well all of you know me, but I just want to be up front. This is the first time I'm going to lead a group like this. And and so you're kind of putting yourself out there, but you don't want to leave it at whatever your perceived weakness is. You want to transition with a butter or a however. So you might say, but it's not the first team I've ever led. Because when I was in college, I ran the uh, university weightlifting club for three years or something like that, where you can show that you had demonstrated some, some leadership. So you can admit your weakness and segue into what is still a positive about you. Certainly, if you ask people for their help, you know, if I were to say, Aram, you know, I am new to this and I know you've got a lot of experience. Could I schedule some time with you? I would love to learn from you so that I avoid some mistakes, right? Now you're feeling like, wow, you know, he's deferring to me and 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 you're you're becoming invested in me. So strategically by doing some of that, you start getting people invested in you and and liking you and you can go so much further than most people who would just go into that meeting cold and they would try to run everything and and it just won't work as well. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, and I think just kind of made me picture back to when I first joined the military as an officer and you first become a platoon leader. You have a platoon sergeant that has 15 
you know, 10 to 15 years of experience and, and you're coming in and doing that exact same thing. It's like, Hey, just want to let you know that I'm new here, but I'm eager to learn. And then it kind of just gives you that little bit of credibility. I've seen that myself and I've seen that with my uh, junior leaders that I've been able to have under me. So sorry, I know that's a, a side thought there, but definitely brought back the, the old days there. So I'm going to now jump into principle number four, which is consensus. Consensus, sometimes known as social proof, describes the fact that because we're social creatures, uh, we are heavily impacted by what other people are doing, what they're thinking and how they're feeling. So as an ethical influencer, trying to bring into your communication, hey, Nolan, other people like you, here's what they think about this. Here's what they're doing with this. Here's how they're feeling about this. We can talk about what lots of people are doing, but it's always better if we can talk about people who are most like you. So the more I get to know you, again, I come back to liking, the more I've connected on what we have in common, I've really got to know you, I can be more thoughtful about who I will talk about that is most like you. And most people will assume that, hey, if, if it worked for these other people, it's probably gonna work for me too. That's why we're heavily impacted by five-star ratings, bestseller, polls, all those kind of things. We just naturally assume if, if they're like me, then I will probably enjoy or want to do that thing too. And I think a tool that I know that, that we teach, and I'm not sure if you do this as well, Brian, is the stakeholder mapping tool where you're basically able to, to map out everyone involved in a negotiation and then kind of figure out the links between all of them. Who's really against whatever you're negotiating, who's for your negotiations, and you kind of can can figure out where you need to take the conversations, who you need to talk to, and get that consensus as you kind of move the, the needle to where you want to go. Um, Aaron, what's what's kind of your experience with, with what Brian's talking about here? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think we do see exactly what Brian's talking about in terms of behaviors. My question for Brian was going to be around innovation, doing something that's never been done before, building energy, excitement around a new idea, a new product. How is there a way to use social proof and consensus in, in that sort of environment too? Well, I have a lot of people who push back when I talk about social proof because nobody wants to feel like a lemming, like a sheep, like they just follow everybody else. Right. And then you start pointing, <laughs> and then you start pointing out examples where they do, right? I mean, where you know you see people starting to get off the highway, you assume, oh, there must be an accident, you just fall in line. There's so much that we do that we just kind of fall in line. But people do want to also feel like they're autonomous, like they're different. And so you get a little bit of pushback there. When you're doing something that is really unique, you either have to obviously build an incredible picture of the future of what things would look like with that or a bad picture of what things will be like without it. So if your company is going to move from a traditional kind of legacy approach to very high tech, that's massively disruptive. The company that I used to work for was going through that. Insurance is a very old industry, slow to change. But you had to paint a picture of if we don't do this and everybody else starts doing it. So there is some consensus there. We are going to be left behind and we may not be able to make up that ground. So so that that fear of loss and what will look, things look like. So those are two approaches. I'm not for fear mongering or scare tactics, but the, the evidence is very clear that people are much more motivated by what they could lose versus what they could gain. So if you can't paint an amazing enough picture of what the future will be, you better paint a picture of the dire consequences 
by staying the same to get people to say, we can't risk that. I don't want to be part of an organization that five years from now might be laying off people or closing its doors. I mean, I agree. And I like, I like how Brian's painting it as, um, you know, really painting the future, either for the good or for the bad. And it's, you know, I I certainly find interesting the human behavior uh, is driven more by the potential negative loss than, than perhaps the, the potential for, you know, even something better. I find that incredibly interesting. I was going to say one example that I've always used, you know, coming out of the insurance industry and, and many industries have bonus plans for could be dealers, reps, things like that. Insurance was like that. So Aram, let's say you were an insurance agent. I could, as a rep, go out at the end of the year, towards the end of the year and say, Aram, you're so close to to reaching that president uh, circle level. And if you get there, you're going to earn an extra $50,000 on your bonus. Now, you're going to be motivated. You might not have known that before. That's a large amount of money. I've just put it in front of you. So you're focused on, you will be motivated. It's a reward. But I could be much more effective if I went out and said, Aram, I just looked at the sales numbers. You're so close to getting to president circle. And if you don't get there, you're going to lose $50,000 of your bonus. And that's going to grip you like, <laughs> what? Well, because you're so close, your bonus is going to be 150. But if you miss it, even by a dollar, you're going to lose the $50,000 kicker. And that's where I'm not fear mongering. I'm honestly saying, look, there's something big on the on the line here. And that's where people like you will work a lot harder to avoid losing what they feel like now is theirs. Well, that's a framing skill too. The way you just framed those those two exact same thing, just framed it very differently. I I don't know if if we spend enough time talking to people about how you how you frame what you are going to say when you when you advocate. So we we're talking about the skills of listening and and good questioning earlier. What you just demonstrated, Brian, was just wonderful kind of framing when we advocate. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Hey, everyone, Nolan here. We're going to end today's podcast right here. If you haven't already, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and be sure to listen to next week as we wrap up our conversation with Brian. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.